Welcome to the very first episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast, where we'll explore the fascinating history of Christian mysticism from the early days of the Church until today. I'm Alberto de la Cruz, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Carlos Ayer, the T. Lawrenson Riggs Professor of History and Religious Studies at Yale University. How are you, Carlos? I'm fine. How are you, Alberto? Good, good. Great to hear from you, and very excited on this podcast that we're starting. Yeah, I am too. This is going to be fun and very informative. It sure is. <laughs> so as we mentioned on our on our trailer, uh, the Christian Mysticism Podcast is going to explore Christian mysticism from its origins to its definition to different Christian mystics that are out there as well as uh, mystics from other religions and how it all ties together from the origin of the church to the church today and but I think one of the most important things, Carlos, is for us to get a definition of what Christian mysticism is. And who better to provide it than, than yourself? Sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it, it's a relatively new term, the way that it's, it's, it's used and how people interpret it, and it's often misunderstood. The most basic definition is that mysticism is... Um, refers to these religious experiences, which um, you can find in most religions around the world in human history. These experiences where the individual has a very, very uh, sort of uh, overwhelming experience of the divine. Another way of saying that is a personal encounter with the divine. So Christian mysticism is not necessarily that someone has certain powers or or a stigmata or something of that nature that they're performing miracles. It it could it could also mean just that personal uh, uh, and and unexplained experience with with God. Correct. That's right. And um, you know, of course, it, it, you can also have mystics that have stigmata and who levitate and bilocate and have all these other physical phenomena associated with these experiences. And I'm really but, looking forward into getting into those stories. <laughs> but that's not, uh, I mean, mysticism, it's best to think of it on a spectrum, right? There's very mild mysticism at one end, which most religious people have. I mean, a, 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 a at the at the sort of low end of the spectrum, it's it's more about feeling. Uh, so you can have a mystical experience, which is a a feeling, as as one prays, you know, a feeling of closeness to God. That's on the mystical spectrum, but there are more intense sorts of experiences that you know the spectrum continues, all the way to extreme ecstasies. And everything in between those two ends of the spectrum could be called mysticism. But technically speaking, it's a term invented by scholars in the 19th century. And uh, these 19th century scholars uh, wanted to have a, a, a term that could be used for all religions. Now, if, if, if we want to understand why scholars came up with this term, it is that the term mystic or mystical uh, in, in English uh, is, is derived from a Greek word uh, that is related to the verb uh, to hide or the noun secret because in its origins, the use of this word in Greek, myo, is with something closed, something that only certain people can access. So what scholars did in the 19th century is uh, they, they didn't actually speak of it as a spectrum. That, that's something that's developed later in, in, in the study of mysticism. But the bottom line is it's about crossing over. It's about crossing over from normal sense perception and linear reasoning to an experience of 
the divine directly. It's like and, being it's like being able to to move into the dimension, for lack of a better term, where where God exists. That's right. It's as it, as opposed to the worldly realm which we all live in is it's almost like a window or or a it's a, a window or a portal a portal yeah that was the other word i was looking for a portal yeah. into into god's it, it, heavenly it, domain that that we we can't even begin to imagine that's right supernatural realm exactly and uh, you know of course it gets very complicated uh after that but I, if i can use one example of um uh, a christian in the 17th century, a very smart man, Blaise Pascal, who uh, invented the first, the world's first calculating machine. He was the one who figured out that you can measure air pressure. He's a mathematician and, and a genius um, who had a mystical experience uh, in the year 1654. And he wrote about it. He, he wrote it on a piece of parchment, you know, sheepskin, and then had it sewn into one of his coats, and this was not discovered till after his death. But um, here's what he wrote, and it's it's all very poetic and and you know, uh, very very much uh, an expression of feeling. And it begins like this, and translating from the French: Fire, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers certitude certitude feeling joy peace and um it goes on from there wow uh, and, and pascal is, is is known for many of his um sort of pithy sayings uh and one of them is the heart has its reasons which reason cannot know this is one of the smartest men of the 17th century. One of the smartest men in, in human history, actually. And, I mean, uh, it, it, if, if you really look at it, you know, throughout history and, and the great minds and scientists and, and intellectuals and philosophers that have tried to sort of figure out religion and figure out God and figure out uh, that whole realm, uh, uh, you know, I'd say one of the problems some of them uh, confronted were trying to look at it from the perspective, from a human perspective, as opposed to a spiritual perspective. Well, yeah. And that's, you know, it's the, again, back to a very basic bottom line. Uh, it's about experiencing another dimension while you, you're, you're in this material dimension that we all call reality, right? The natural, real world. But what most mystics, uh, and not just in Christianity, but in, in, in other religions too, what they claim is that there's another dimension that is more real than this <laughs> because it's eternal. And yeah, that, you know, time, time, that, is, uh, time is left behind along with you know, material perception. That, so, that's, always, that's always been one of the, the most puzzling and... and and bewildering things to me about thinking about heaven and God and, and the dimension is just how it's outside of time. And, and for us humans to, to think and to reason and to perceive anything outside of linear time is, it's, I would say it's, it's impossible for me. Right. And, and I've always felt, you know, for, for many, many years, I've always felt that time was, you know, God's fishbowl for us. That's He keeps us in a fishbowl of time. And, you know, once we get out of that, but when you think about the mystics and they get a peek into that, uh, I I couldn't even begin to imagine well, what it must it, feel like what, to see something so grand. What what all all mystics in, in all religions say about their experiences is that human language fails. You cannot really explain it. You can just do something like what I just read from Pascal, right? Uh, you, you can hint at what is, is perceived when one crosses over. Or actually, uh, many of them speak, you know, it's not that the person crosses over, 
it's that the, the supernatural sort of breaks through to you. It's a simultaneous thing. It's a two-way, it's a two-way street, right? And um, language fails. And in, you know, in later podcasts, we can, we can dwell on that because that is uh, so much a central part of what every mystic says when they write or speak about their crossing over to the, to the supernatural. And, and, and speaking they, of, no, it's speaking of crossing over, it, it kind of brings to mind uh, people that have claimed to have to have had near death experiences where they go to heaven or they see Jesus or or angels or God and and sort of tour. Would would you classify that to be in in you know in the same area in the same realm? Well, as uh, what, what mystics see, I I think so, but one has to be careful um, about this because. Uh, these near-death experiences, which are so well documented, they they run the gamut from the 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 very sort of fictionalized version of that other dimension as um, very similar to this dimension. The others that try to describe something which they keep telling you is indescribable. Yeah, it's almost it, it's almost like they're portraying it in a in a human way. It's you know you you read these near death experiences and you know I went through a tunnel, I saw a light, I walked right. through the tunnel, uh, I was taken by the hand, I was right taken here, you know. So it's sort of in in a it's it's described in a way that we can understand as as humans, which you know you bring up a good point. It makes you wonder. Uh, you know just how uh, you know the veracity of 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 these accounts or or who's exactly behind it right but yeah. sort of similar how do apparitions fall into this oh appar this is uh again uh th there are technical terms used by scholars and then there are technical terms used by each christian church so apparitions are very much part of catholic and orthodox christianity and an apparition is distinguished from a mystical experience in various ways but the most important one is that an apparition is some kind of divine apparition or heavenly apparition and then within catholicism and orthodox christianity um you know it could be Jesus, who appears. It could be the Virgin Mary who appears. In much rarer occasions, some saint who is in heaven appears. But the person who receives this apparition did not necessarily prepare for it. It's just a surprise. And if you read any, any apparition account, it's always, you know, people being surprised. And right. in the Catholic tradition, especially uh, beginning in the late Middle Ages, so, you know, beginning in the 15th century, 16th, 17th, then it intensifies. You have an, a growing number of apparitions, and those who see these apparitions, many of them, end up being children. because there's And, and then there's a linkage made in the Catholic tradition between the innocence of children that makes them more receptive to these apparitions than adults because innocence has a lot to do with these apparitions and if i could just sort of go back to to mysticism for a second one of the differences between mysticism and an apparition which some people use the term interchangeably vision or apparition Somebody has a vision of the Virgin Mary. Somebody, the Virgin Mary appears and it's an apparition. The term, those two terms are used very loosely and sometimes interchangeably. But the main difference between mysticism is that it's linked to a lifestyle, to a very certain kind of life devoted to prayer. People who have done something or keep doing something to bring themselves close to God. So they, they prepare themselves for these experiences, right? 
whereas a vision or apparition can happen to someone unexpected. Right. So, uh, I mean, I think it's good we're talking about this because it, it, we not only learn what mysticism is, we're also learning what mysticism isn't. That's so right. And there, there's a whole, so many things that, you know, people, you know, lay, lay people such as myself would, would, would kind of classify under mysticism, but it really doesn't fall under mysticism because mystics, as, at least what I've read in the past, are, they're almost seeking it out, almost, yes. you know, working towards that goal of, of developing a, a, a relationship with, with God, with Christ, that's so close that they, they touch. That's right. So, so it's as opposed to, you know, I, I keeps coming to mind as we were talking about apparitions and things of that nature of, uh, recently saw that film Father Stew, and I don't know if you've had a chance to see it. No, I haven't. No. But, but it's a true story. And in, in one scene, he was involved in a really bad accident and, you know, it's a miracle that he survived, but the Virgin Mary came to him and, and told him, you know, it's not your time. You have, you know, you have basically you have some things to do, huh. and you know that was a life-changing moment for him. He was struggling whether you know he was converting to to Christianity to Catholicism and didn't know uh, which way to go. But that that moment was a watershed moment for him, and that's what completely changed his life. But he wasn't seeking it out; he just happened to get into a really bad accident. And uh, as he laid there on, on the ground thinking he was going to die, the Virgin Mary came and, and told him, no, it's not time. Well, that's that's close to a near-death experience. From the that could, yeah, yeah that could be it, too. Yeah. Um, but the fact remains that um, this applies to all major religions. Mysticism is tied to a very specific kind of life which involves uh, two things, especially. One is prayer, right? So you're already starting a dialogue, you, and you, you enter into a regular sort of dialogue with the divine through prayer. So in that respect, all Christians who pray are involved in, in, in sort of that lower end of the spectrum mysticism. And the other element that is globally a part of, of mysticism in, in, in religion is self-denial of some kind. Uh, and now what, what, what do I mean by self-denial? Self-denial, which involves, you know, fasting and, and being very careful about one's behavior. There, there is no such thing in, in, in the mystical tradition as someone who is living a very materialistic, dissolute life who suddenly has a mystical experience, right? Yeah, it's just what, not, it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. Um, despite what, despite what you see in the movies and, uh, that's right. And reading books. But, uh, you know, for instance, for those who are familiar with, um, the new Testament, the story of Paul or Saul, who was persecuting Christians right after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the road Saul, to Damascus. Saul is a very, very pious Pharisee, a Jew, a Jewish Pharisee who doesn't like Jesus' followers. He thinks that they're all, you know, heretics. So he's persecuting them. And uh, on his way to Damascus, he gets knocked off his horse by a, a vision of Jesus. Jesus uh, appears to him and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And, uh, course he converts to becomes a christian he joins the christians but he was not prepared for that but you have to take into the context that he was a very pious pharisee he already had a relationship with the divine and that is made very clear in, in, in the acts of the apostles and paul also makes it very clear in in his letters and his epistles that he already had a relationship with God, but he was just mistaken. His, you know, he, he he was wrong, and Jesus shows up and 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 tells him, Paul, I mean Saul, Saul, 
why, why are you doing this? This is all wrong. Why do you persecute me? Uh, and it takes them a while to become a member of the Christian community because they don't trust them. But um, he also says in his letters that, you know, he, he never saw Christ Jesus in the flesh. He only saw him after the resurrection and ascension. Uh, but he counts his encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus as a, a real encounter. Like, and, and he knew him. He, he got to know Jesus personally. Jesus crossed over into this dimension to straighten him out. And I get this so, question all the time. Well, why so, doesn't Jesus do that to everybody? <laughs> yeah. It's a good it, question. It's a very I, I, I don't know. I, I every time I uh, you know and I've I've wondered that too and I always think about that uh that quote from C.S. Lewis that you know man man seeking the God to see God is like, you know, a mouse seeking to see a cat it's like you know be careful what you ask for oh yeah god is god is oh, is absolutely is all it is it, way more powerful than oh. we can than we can even start to begin to imagine and uh, you know be careful wanting to be in his presence and, uh, yeah, and you yeah. look throughout the bible every time uh with, yes. with moses and and uh, and other uh characters in the bible when they've come up <clears throat> come across god that they've you know fall to the you know fall to the ground put their face to the ground they they can't stand they can't bear to to look at the you know upon right. the face of god and it's terrifying and actually uh, throughout the bible when when angels appear to people usually the first thing they say is uh don't be afraid <laughs> right right don't, don't be terrified this is good Please calm down. Yeah, well, you know, there, there's one one mystic, 15th century Catherine of Genoa. We can come back to her in, in another podcast, but she had something to explain that it sums sums up what we've been discussing just now. Sums it up so perfectly, and it is this: she said, a soul that is a, a person. Let's, let's be a little more uh, basic. A person who has been living the wrong kind of life, if they were to be placed in God's presence, would, would be totally crushed by the experience because of the, the distance between them uh, and the divine, because the divine is all goodness. And if one has led a life that is just not, all that good and one comes in the presence of the divine which is ultimate goodness the experience would be devastating and and actually i don't want to bring this up now as something to to go down the road the the notion of purgation or cleansing right. uh, which is linked to the catholic teaching of purgatory actually what she was saying when she said what what i just related she was speaking about souls in purgatory, Catholic belief. She said, a soul in purgatory who has not been fully cleansed will not want to leave purgatory because going to God's presence in, in an impure state would be devastating. Which brings me to, to this very basic point about mysticism and more specifically, uh, the tradition of mysticism in the Catholic and Orthodox traditions. Again, it's a process and a spectrum. It's both of those things. It's a process and a spectrum. And the process is ba three basic steps. The first step, in order to enter into that spectrum, first step is purgation or cleansing, getting rid of one's nastiness and how do you do that well you do that by you know self-denial because actually you know the, the the root of all sin or bad behavior is is selfishness so right purgation is step number one then two step number two is that you begin to break through to that other dimension or that other dimension begins to break through to you and that stage is 
illumination, right? Your mind is illumined. Things get clearer, brighter for you because you, you go into that other dimension. And the third and final step, which uh, in the Catholic and Orthodox tradition is considered to be always a temporary kind of experience, is union, right? A very, very close union uh, with the divine, which comes and goes, comes and goes. Everyone says that. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. you don't get, I, I guess you cross over permanently when your body is over, you die, and, That's and right. your soul, but I, I can't imagine it, it's a permanent place where you can stay and, and or spend most of your time there, and because that's that's not, I would imagine that's not the purpose God has. Well, not has only, for us, right? Uh, because mysticism, which again I, I I keep saying this, I know, but it's very important to keep in mind that it's not just Christians who have mystics, but I think it's very very important to realize that this is a a common human experience, right? So if you're going to be very scientific about it, and scientific not just in, in, in terms of social science like anthropology, but scientific in, in, in terms of biology and even chemistry and medicine is, is the fact that these unitive experiences that Christians talk about and other religions also, mystics speak of these, there's unitive experiences is that um, if you're there for too long in that state, your body will cease to function. In wow. other words, you'll die. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you weren't. Your body wasn't built to be. That's right. Uh, living in that in in that realm. That's right. And yes, yeah. And I know. And I know our our podcast is is called the Christian Mysticism Podcast, but uh, I think it's it's important. As as we try to understand and learn and 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 get a better grasp of of what Christian mysticism is 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 to address and and one of the topics that we'll be discussing in future in future episodes is that mysticism is not just a phenomenon uh, among Christians. Other religions have have those as well. Right, and there are scholars actually who prefer to speak of mysticisms in the plural, rather than mysticism. Because we can come back to this theme or not, which is, you know, what are the similarities and what are the differences between the, the mystical experiences of, let's say, a Buddhist, a Hindu, a, a Muslim, a Jew, and a Christian. Yeah, they're very different experiences, but they do have some things in common. And What would, um, what would you say some of those things are? Well, one, one of them is, you know, the, the, the feeling. One is, them is, is feeling. It, it's, it's, there's an emotional dimension. Uh, and, and the other is actually uh, physical, uh, physical changes that can take place um, while in ecstasy. And the ecstatic experience is something that is common. So let's leave it at that for now. It's, 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 mysticism is all about having ecstatic experience. And what does ecstasy mean? It means that you're out of your body. Ecstasy, the Greek word, is standing outside yourself. And, and that is the, the mind or the soul or the spirit or whatever uh, it is that experiences the other, the supernatural. It's not the only thing experiencing the supernatural. It's also the body because we are embodied. And this is a common thread that runs through. And again, we can come back to this later, but scientists have done research on the human brain. Neurologists have researched um, and found where in the human brain religious experience can be located, all right? It's that specific. There's a part of our brain that's the religious part. And um, there are a couple of scientists who have developed this, and it's a fascinating subject. 
in, in testing, actually, you know, wiring up people while they're praying, for instance. There's a famous study carried out with Carmelite nuns who were wired up. They're, they're, you know, they're, they put electrode things on their skulls like everyone gets when they have an electrocardiogram. Right. And uh, they, they, met, they, they, they mapped out where, where their brains were most active when they were in prayer. And that's only one of many such experiments that have been carried out. Uh, at, at the more extreme end of this ec- experimentation, uh, there were these neuro- neurologists who devised what they called the God helmet, right? And it was a helmet with all the electrode things on it in the right spots. And they, they through electromagnetic stimulation, could evoke religious experiences in most of the people who wore the helmet. Interesting. So, it 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 that that the, sounds like a that sounds like a uh, the topic for a, for for an episode just yes. on the god helmet yes yeah which is fascinating but my point is the reason i bring it up you know in the very first chat that we're having uh is not to distract uh anyone from the the subject of what mysticism is but to actually uh bring into the discussion the fact that in mysticism there there is always some kind of interplay between the physical and the spiritual but the physical can't be left out because that's who human beings are we are physical beings so therefore the fact that there is some kind of meeting point in the human brain for the spiritual and the material or the natural and the supernatural it simply means that you know the human brain is equipped to go into that other dimension but it simply can't stay there it cannot stay there for very long and 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 speaking of the physical realm i know uh, mysticism has been around there's you know famous cases and uh, you know that we'll get into in future in future episodes, but a lot of non-believers, atheists, science, you know, people that that are trying to to find a a human explanation for for a supernatural event, can may believe that these people are suffering psychological oh episodes absolutely. or schizophrenia. Yeah. You know the voices that they hear are they're they're actually schizophrenic and things of that nature absolutely Um, absolutely as a matter of fact uh, as a quip by bertrand russell the mathematician and philosopher who was an atheist and actually authored a book uh titled um why i am not a christian (laughs) bertrand russell says uh i see very little difference between men who eat too little and see angels and men who drink too much and see snakes <laughs> but uh, yeah it can also all, mysticism can always be pathologized and turn into some kind of mental illness and uh, it might help now see if i if you just do a little bit of uh searching in dictionaries for the definitions of mysticism you can come up you can find many many sort of negative definitions and and i'll 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 just read four picked from various dictionaries right um and i won't say which dictionaries okay but the first one is this definition belief that union with or absorption into the deity or the absolute or the spiritual apprehension of knowledge inaccessible to the intellect may be attained through contemplation and self-surrender that's that's a good definition the second one is mysticism belief characterized by self-delusion or dreamy confusion of thought especially when based on the assumption of occult qualities or mysterious agencies number three 
mysticism is the belief that direct knowledge of God, spiritual truth, or ultimate reality can be attained through subjective experience, such as intuition or insight. And then uh, the, the most insulting of all, number four, and some people use it this way, number four, mysticism is vague speculation, colon, a belief without sound basis. Yeah, well, I, I, I wonder if the person who wrote that is atheist. <laughs> I, I wonder. I wonder. But, you know, um, I, I had this experience once um, with a, a student. And I was teaching my mysticism class at, at the University of Virginia. I, I mentioned in the, in the first lecture, I always used to say this in the first lecture, you know, these people we're going to be reading are, are very unusual people. And they might be the kind of people you don't want to sit next to on a bus <laughs> because they see things that other people don't see. And I thought that was a funny way of introducing how weird mystics can be. I can I, I I can only imagine from from someone who knows a mystic, like the friends of Saint Teresa de Avila, and what you know what it would be like to to know her and speak to her, and uh, understanding everything that she's seen and everything that she's she's gone through and everything she's experienced, but also I think it's fascinating to think. When you are a mystic and you have seen the other side and you have seen things that no other, uh, you know, very few other humans have ever seen, uh, uh, you know, except for other mystics, and you've seen these incredible, horrifying and 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 awe-inspiring visions and and conversations, you have to wonder how they view their fellow humans after that. Well, like and and their surroundings. It's yes. it's like, you know, sort of like living in a you know in a in a thatch roof hut with dirt floors and then you get to go into the mansion and and enjoy a big a big buffet and and swim in the pool and and enjoy all the trappings and then you got to go back to live in the hut yes and this is why uh teresa saint teresa wrote a, a poem where the refrain used in every stanza is Me muero porque no muero. I die because I'm not dying. <laughs> or another way of translating it, I'm dying to die. Yeah, I mean, once Me you see it, why, no muero. why yeah. do you want to go back to, That's to, right. oh. to this? And then and she's, I, you know, she refers to the body. Uh, when you come back, she refers to it as, as a prison or like, having a, a large heavy chain around you so and, uh, she, and she suffered a lot of health issues oh yeah she did and there's actually uh, no nobody has diagnosed what was wrong with her but she was totally paralyzed for a while and at one point uh her family thought she was dead they were they were having the the wake right uh, and back wow. then there were no funeral there were no funeral homes so you know every the wakes were held in people's houses and uh this is kind of funny because they had actually you know put up a how could you tell people were dead in the 16th century without you know electronic medical equipment they they put a mirror under her nose see to if see it fogs if it up. Would fog up right and as far as they could tell she was not breathing so during the wake Someone in the room fell asleep, knocked over a candle, and a curtain caught on fire. And at that moment, Teresa woke up from her coma <laughs> and terrified everybody in the room <laughs> because they thought she was dead. And her recovery was very, very, very slow, very slow and very painful. I, I wonder, going back to something you mentioned uh, a little while ago about spending so much time in in that other realm, uh, in the presence of God or close to the presence of God and, and how it affects the human body. I wonder, because she had some very intense experiences and yes, you, did. and, and, and you wonder if that was the source of her, of her ailment. 
uh, her well, her body yeah. just suffering the consequences of of spending so much time or having such intense experiences uh, with God. Well, the this illness I was speaking about and her her death, right, or what her family thought was her death. This all happened before she started having mystical experience. These predate all of her mystical. Oh wow! I thought it had taken place after. Nope. This this the the wake that was being held. She was living in a convent, but she was not having mystical experiences. She was still a teenager, basically, um, or or in her early twenties, and um, she had to be taken out of the convent because. Um, you know, her father was desperate and, and seeking out doctors. And doctors just kept making her worse and worse and worse. But no, um, after she started having mystical experiences, she would have other bodily phenomena that she described um, in several places as extreme pain. And after these uh, mystical ecstasies, she said that in her entire body hurt and that her hands actually hurt so much that she couldn't pick up the uh, the feather with which she was writing. Because, of course, back then, you know, you wrote with quills. So even picking up something as light as a feather was too much for her hand to handle. Interesting. But um, so maybe it did. It did. Maybe it did have some effect. Oh, on, yeah. Oh, on definitely. Her, on her on her body. And actually, the way that um, her death was interpreted is is worth bringing up now because she died from a, a hemorrhage. She hemorrhaged to death, um, and and you know, all sorts of retroactive diagnoses have been offered. You know that maybe she had a uterine cancer or ovarian cancer. Um, but whatever it was, the way it was interpreted was because she, she bled so profusely was that she had a mystical experience that was so intense and that her, her body just could not take it. In other words, she went into an ecstasy from which she did not emerge. So it ended up, it ended up killing her body, which. Yeah. What she wanted very much. Right. Which based on her poem is exactly what she wanted. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. She yeah. may have even done it on purpose. Well, that's another thing, though, if I could stop you on that point. Sure. In the Catholic and Orthodox Christian mystical tradition, the individual does some things, but the individual cannot actually bring these things on. It is always considered uh, a gift. As a matter of fact, in, in Spanish, uh, so Teresa called them favores. It's a favor, un favor. So, um, yeah, she just went into that final ecstasy. She was already very ill and very weak uh, because, uh, well, her nuns didn't always have enough food to eat. They were that poor. Um, and, um, you know, you, you can f- focus on the physical to the point that there's an article that appeared in 1982 that diagnosed Teresa as having temporal lobe epilepsy hmm. because so many of her symptoms uh, match those of temporal lobe epilepsy. So again, you can pathologize, you can make it a, a medical, uh, you, you, you can make it a physiological medical kind of uh, experience. And of course, with epilepsy too, it's not something anybody can control. It just happens. You get, you know, you have your seizures. So that's another reason that this article argued that, yeah, yeah, she she might have had temporal lobe epilepsy. But since this was uh, published in the Catholic Historical Review, uh, the conclusion was, well, even if she did have temporal lobe epilepsy, that what matters most is not. Um, that she had this ailment, but it's what she did with it. <laughs> well, her writings, I think, are a testament to, yeah. to to what she experienced, and and if if that was temporal lobe epilepsy, it gave her some incredible 
That's visions right. and experiences. Yes. It's what you do with it. What you do with it. Exactly. Which exactly. brings me back to you know what I uh, used to tell my class during the first lecture. You don't don't want to sit next to mystic on the bus. Um, exactly. One year, a student came up to me. A student I knew because uh, she had taken two other courses from me before. And she was a brilliant student. And every professor that had her in a class just loved her because she was so brilliant. But she came up after class, and since she knew me already, she could say this to me. She said, Professor, you know, um, you really offended me with that comment about the, the bus. I said, why? She said, because I see things that other people don't see all the time. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if she was some kind of psychotic, right, as critics might say, oh, this is all psychosis. Uh, she was a highly functional psychotic, it, more more highly functional than people who were not. <laughs> so right. that taught me a lesson. It really did. Um, and I don't know what her, I can't remember what her religious tradition was. It doesn't matter, you know. These, the, there are people who do cross over and do wonderful things. Absolutely. And that's always a test, you see, in the Catholic and Orthodox Christian traditions. It's what these individuals do with their lives that makes all the difference. So if somebody's having these experiences or claiming them, and then they live a life that is not uh, compatible with the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know, they start carrying on in, in some way or abusing others. Then it's pretty clear that they're not the genuine article. And um, for every real mystic in Christian history, there have been many people who try to fake it, try to convince others of that course. they are. Of course, there's there's always going to be those situations. And, and I imagine you know, from a, from a Christian perspective, there could be experiences that appear mystical and appear to be otherworldly and, and heavenly, but aren't coming from God or aren't being, well, we, we which, can which get is in... another episode yes. <laughs> in, yeah. in and of itself as well. Yes. These uh, Christian mystics, uh, when they cross over into the other dimension, it's not just the good stuff that they encounter. Uh, and that's part and parcel of, you know, Christian belief that, yes, of course, there's a God, but there are also evil creatures, evil angels. As and, as as it has been written, if there's light, there has to be dark. Well, there are, we, we can get back to this, but, you know, um, mysticism is is full of opposing experiences paradoxically conjoined such as you know experiencing evil and experiencing ultimate goodness when you cross over and there are many dichotomies you know body soul natural supernatural so on and so forth uh, but all of these uh, paradoxes are, are are always um resumed in the mystical experience where um, you can end up having the coincidence of opposites. So a paradox is no longer a paradox. And I guess, you know, one of the more important ones in Christian mysticism is the paradox of God being divine and human because of the incarnation. Uh, Jesus was fully divine, fully human. How does that make sense? Or the Trinity. Trinity is there's one God, but three persons in one God. All of these paradoxes are resolved in a way that can't be explained. Fascinating. Well, Carlos, I think we've gotten a pretty good idea of what mysticism is and, and how we're going to to address it and, and talk about it in the coming episodes of the podcast. There's a lot to digest in what we've we've talked about, but I think we our listeners get a pretty good idea of 
where we're coming from and who we're going to be talking about and what we're going to be talking about in the coming episodes of the Christian Mysticism podcast. So what are you going to have for us uh, on the next episode, Professor? Um, I think it's it's uh, just natural to move on to the issue of, you know, what is Christian mysticism? Uh, you know, where, where, where does it come from? Where, where can the origins of Christian mysticism be found? And, and how has Christianity been mystical for two millennia? Uh, so we'll have to get into the issue of, uh, you know, it's kind of the genealogical question of the Jewish roots of Christian mysticism as well as the non-Jewish philosophical roots of mysticism. Uh, many people don't realize this. They might have been exposed to you know, Greek philosophers in, in their education at some point as philosophers, but many of these Greek philosophers were actually mystics. So we have to dig deep and, and find these roots next time we talk. That sounds exciting and interesting and i i know i can't wait to get back together with you to discuss it and i'm sure our listeners will will feel the same way so until the next time we meet i wish you the very best a very happy new year in 2023 thank you all for listening to the christian mysticism podcast if you have any questions for dr air you'll find our email address in the show notes just send it on over and we'll try to answer it in a future episode and don't forget to click the subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode of the Christian Mysticism Podcast.